Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1410 entitled The Lord of the Rinse. Now, that's just to remind me to run the dishwasher later on while the solar is still juiced up. Ignore the title. Our podcast title is Rings of Potter. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. I started the show today before the Zero G intro with Verse of the Rings, which was read by none other than Saruman himself, Sir Christopher Lee, from the Tolkien Ensemble from the Fellowship of the Ring album. And we are obviously going to be talking about Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. The new television series, which has dropped. Yes, so that one's on Amazon Prime. The first two episodes dropped on September 1st, and then have they've been dropping weekly. Uh, there'll be eight altogether in season one, and they're all about an hour long. And I've watched two episodes so far. Ooh, lovely. I've only watched the first one. I just wanted to get a bit of a taste. But from what I understand, you've done the right thing there, where the first two are kind of a companion, and you should watch both of them together. And both of those first two are directed by J.A. Bayona as well as part of how they're setting up the whole premise of the new season. So should we talk a little bit about exactly what is Rings of Power? So we've got showrunners J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay, and they've taken on quite a big task because, as we know, Tolkien, it's a doozy to adapt. So this one, like you mentioned, is on Amazon Prime, and not just is it on Amazon Prime, it's got Bezos behind it. So it's kind of a passion project for him as a big Tolkien fan. And from what I can tell, Amazon Prime is definitely putting a lot of oomph behind the marketing for this. And that is probably because a lot of money went into it. But the rights to do this show, the television rights, uh, went for about 250 million US dollars, which is a pretty epic just for the rights. And so also, uncommonly, Bezos doesn't, you know, get his hands dirty with the TV programming at the Amazon studios, but he was personally involved with all of these negotiations and that kind of thing. But yes, this adaptation does have the blessing of the Tolkien family or the Tolkien kind of lineage, I suppose. And it is set to be probably one of, if not the most expensive TV show ever made. So I wonder if that's probably a combo of the rights. Plus it's pretty high budget, which you can tell straight off the bat from how it's looking and the atmosphere that we're creating. So it's set during the second age of Middle-earth. Now this is, it's season of prequels, like we mentioned in our Radiothon show, but it is set roughly 2000 years before the activities of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit as well. So we're in prequel territory here. And what happened during this age? Well, it's sort of the rise of Dark Lord Sauron in Middle-earth and most importantly, the forging of the Rings of Power, hence the title. And we'll be getting a bit of the wars between Sauron and the elves. So very 
elf focused as you probably might have seen from some of the trailers and the promotional materials as well lots of golden lots of lights shining but also lots of kick-ass battles as well which i'm i'm here for for sure so it's actually not based on a specific novel but it's based on the appendices of the lord of the rings trilogy so there's a bit of a rough story skeleton there So this has had to be fleshed out and there's been additional characters, stories and so on made. And I think that's part of where this is forging forging a bit of new territory, which is, I think, pretty interesting. Also, just to note, we've got a composer that we're familiar with in Bear McCreary. So the music for this kind of combines a bit of the original movie scores, but there's also a lot of new pieces by McCreary. He's worked on many Zero-G beloved shows like Walking Dead, Foundation, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Snowpiercer series. So, yeah, we've dipped a toe into the fires of Mordor already. So (laughs) we can talk a bit more about the plot and characters, but I guess just off the bat, Rob, what's your first thoughts, top of minds? Well, I'm quite entertained by it. He says in his Russell Crowe, are you not entertained? Gladiator voice. (laughs) It's appropriately scaled, which Mm -hmm. is to say Mm -hmm. epic. And that didn't actually suit, sad to say, the three Hobbits movies. Mm -hmm. They did the prequels to the Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm. for Peter Jackson's ones. This one, not as overindulged because of its large scale. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. If if you've got a little story like The Hobbit is supposed to be smaller scale and you overindulge it, and it's not easy to overindulge Hobbitses, (laughs) then it just bloated out. But this one, it feels like the right size to start with. Mm. Mm, yeah. yeah, it feels like watching a movie, really. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the kind of scale of the production is extremely high, as we would expect considering the money that's gone into this. But I agree in terms of the story and the pacing. It seems like a TV show is the right call for this in terms of they've got a bit of space to move and because they can create story elements. And I think, you know, Bezos kind of went into this and he's like, I want our Game of Thrones. And I'll talk a little bit about how it differs from Game of Thrones quite a bit, but in concept like a sprawling fantasy kind of setup where you can build characters and build stories and things. So as you mentioned, yeah, previously in terms of Tolkien properties, we've had the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings trilogy that the first Fellowship of the Ring came out in 2001. And then, yes, the bloated Hobbit prequel trilogy, which came out from 2012. We also have Ralph Bakes. She's somewhat abbreviated Lord of the Rings animated movie. Mm -hmm, And mm I think it's the Rankin-Bass Hobbit television special. These are all ones from the glory days of Lord of the Rings. So it went through a revival in the late 60s and 70s. Yep. There was a lot of counterculture enthusiasm for Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And then it sort of lay fallow in the 80s. But, you know, it wasn't a fallow ship because they'd never been out of print as books. Yeah. Yeah, so they yeah. just sailed on, and then obviously they got the Jackson movies and mm. haven't looked back since then. And of course, there have been very many audio adaptations to a massive BBC radio totally. drama, which was great, mm-hmm. and so on. Oh, and there's an interesting parallel stream of non English television adaptations of Tolkien's core texts as well. Amongst others, there's some rather startling entries from the Soviet Union, a Hobbit adaptation in 1985 and a Lord of the Rings miniseries in 1991. There's a whole thing with translations of Tolkien into Russian during the Soviet era revolving around politically suspect monarchist leanings and the 
east-west conflict in the text that had to be worked around by subversive artists, and they did. Uh, Google the Soviet adaptations by all means, they're very eclectic. And running next to that, amongst others, was a Swedish telemovie in the 1970s and a Finnish miniseries in the 1990s. But anyway, with this new production, I felt like they've kind of nailed where they should be with it. And you have to be really careful about it because, you know, the purists, mm. and, and, you know, I can be a bit of a Tolkien purist, but not too much, because although Tolkien had gunpowder on Middle Earth, I don't believe he invented cannon. So, you know, the thing about this is that you can't write Lord of the Rings without stumbling into orc burrows of traps in terms of things that happen. Now, they've got the rights to the Lord of the Rings book and the appendices. Mm. If you have the copy of the Lord of the Rings that has got all of the appendices in, and there are different ones. Some of them are like have had appendectomies so they don't have them all in there but you know there's indexes and maps and so on notes on philology and of course Tolkien was a philologist so he was very much into languages and law and the thing is that because this has the rights to those you can actually do a lot of what's sort of like the expanded Tolkien universe now he Mm. wrote lots of notes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. copious amounts of notes so much so that his son Christopher published a massive series of the, called the Book of Lost Tales. Mm. And, you know, there's like multi-volumes in that that go on and on and on forever. Plus the Silmarillion, and there's a couple of other books too. And the Silmarillion kind of is like a Bible mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the the Tolkien verse. But that, again, I don't think that was published until after he died. Mm. He, he himself couldn't make it kind of work in with the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And a lot of that really is author play. Yeah. He was having a lot of fun creating all of this, you know. So mm, uh, mm, mm. whether or not you actually need that is one point, and I will mm. say it's an entmoot point, but you don't actually have it here, the Silmarillion and the Lost Tales books. That's all verboten. You can't use that in the Lord of yes. the Rings, yeah. Rings of Power. So that's going to trip up people who want to be gatekeepers and law masters just for a start. Yeah, yeah. I will say too, just as a note, I think probably most people would have watched the Jackson trilogy, but yeah. I will say to you if you don't remember it or you haven't watched it or you're just not at all across any Lord of the Rings, I want to give this a go. I actually don't think you really need any pre-existing knowledge. I think because it's a prequel as well, I think obviously – it would probably help, but I actually don't think from what I've seen, you it's sort of doing its own thing. So I'm not sure if you'd need to be that across the Lord of the Rings to get something out of this. Yeah. Should we take a little track to set the mood yes. before we talk a bit more about the plot and characters? Yes, and this time I'm going to give you the Lord of the Rings in 99 seconds. And this is by John Cosart. <laughs> tempted to say it's costume art, but it's Cosart. And this is a single called Lord of the Rings in 99 Seconds, which I thought was just such a, a cute idea. And, you know, <laughs> it, it reminds me of, was it Charles Ross and his one-man Lord of the Rings show? You're listening to Zero G on Triple R FM. We want it. We need it. Must have the precious. <laughs> <laughs> That was charming. <laughs> well, there you go. Like I said, you don't need the background, but you've got it now. Yeah, acapella. 
<laughs> Lord of the Rings in 99 Seconds by John Cozart. That was great. <laughs> I feel fully informed now. And actually, Megan, we both come from a different place in mm. Middle Earth. I've grown up with the books and read yeah. them regularly at least once a year mm. back to the first age. <laughs> and seen, of course, the Jackson films and all these other little bits and pieces of audio and, and movie and wannabe productions along the way, but you haven't actually read the books. No. So, yes, I actually do really want to read. I haven't even read The Hobbit and I would like to. I, of course, though, the movies have a big place for me because, yeah, the first one came out in 2001 and so that's like kind of my formative. I was in high school at that time and so that trilogy, that was like the golden age of big trilogies it was like the one of the big fantasy kind of trilogies and I think it was just a really big part of culture at that time I think these days there's so much out there but that was something I do feel most people got into watched had an interest in even if they wouldn't normally engage with kind of genre content I think it was just part of the mainstream so those movies to me are a big part of my kind of cultural background (laughs) well when you do read the books you'll actually be getting the inspiration for all of the other big fantasy trilogies Mm. and so on. Totally. From what I understand, it all stems back to what J.I.R. Tolkien was doing with the the trilogy. So I should check it out and I'm keen to. You're Tolkien. You will also find out that the Lord of the Rings book, there's a lot of things that are described in almost a Spartan tone Mm. Uh, and, you know, like the Battle of Helm's Deep is actually quite short in the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can see, I know they've taken some liberties for what's going to be good on screen and dragged certain things out and, and then not covered certain things. So it will be interesting to see how, how it stacks up. Glorfindel, he says, which is either a cough or a patent medicine. And as, as we've joked before, the elves all have medicine names, really, when you think about it. <laughs> True. You know what I found out, which really chuffed me? As you may know, there are characters in the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, who exist in the Lord of the Rings movies as well because it's even though it's thousands of years, elves have very long lives. They do. You know, yes. so, you know, like Galadriel and Elrond. And- yeah, so let's set up a bit of exactly what we're, we're getting from Rings of Power. So we're introducing our context and the time. And like you mentioned, Galadriel is kind of the big, a very central player when we meet her. She's got a quest to confirm that the evil Sauron has in fact been vanquished. She's like a warrior elf. She's pretty (laughs) badass. And so we get introduced to Galadriel, who was originally Kate Blanchett from the Jackson trilogy, and she is played in Rings of Power by Morford Clark. And I think she's doing a really wonderful job. She's very magnetic to watch, in my opinion. We also meet Elrond, originally played by Hugo Weaving, and in Rings of Power, he is played by Robert Arameo, which I think is some nice casting as well. And though they obviously have a, a few scenes together and a bit of a, a backstory there. But we also get some new elements. So introducing the Harfoots. The Harfoots are actually one of the three breeds of hobbits. <laughs> Stephen Colbert will come running at me and beat me about the head with his copy of Lord of the Rings. He is actually going to appear in the series too. I think we've <gasps> paid him off. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Harfoots. They hide in different areas and they make their home uh, in the forest. And then we've also introduced to a bit of a, <laughs> the beginnings of an unrequited love story. And we hit a few different areas. So we see a bit of the elven kingdom Balinor. We see Linden, where the elves are living in Middle Earth. 
the Southlands where some humans live <laughs> and and so on. And so this is in the first episode at least. And we also do get introduced to some new characters. I'll pluck out a couple of interest. So we've got Markella Kavanagh as Nori. So she's a curious half-foot and she wants to know more about the world. She's obviously, I can see already, inserting herself into some of the action. The half-foots are obviously related to the hobbits. Yes. So, you know, look, we need not, we know not spend any time at all on the nonsensical uh, mm. ideas about, no, you can't change gender, you can't have different races playing hobbits and stuff. For a start, it's fantasy. You want to draw your line there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> Hobbit dust, basically. We don't need any of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's one of the things, too. There's quite diverse casting, and obviously that's, you know, people have come up from their own burrows to have a bit of a whinge, but we're not going to validate that with any kind of response. Yes, we've got Nori, so the Harfords, we learn a little bit about them, and we've also got Aaron Deer. Now, he's a, an elf posted by uh, a small town with some questionable alliances, and Aaron Deer is played by Ismail Cruz Cordova. We've got a couple of parallel stories being set up here, so we've got a little, some things happening in the Southlands, we've got what Galadriel's up to, and she makes some kind of big decisions in the first episode, and then we've also we've got a kind of cliffhanger at the end of episode one. Did you want to add anything to that, Rob, considering you've seen the, the two first episodes? Okay, we also get, I think, as far as I can tell, the Istari, which mm-hmm. are basically the wizard's represented by Gandalf and Saruman and Radagast the Brown, that sort of thing. Great. At least as far as I can figure out, that's my guess. Mm-hmm. We also have glimpses of the Ents, you know, the tree <gasps> Yes, we characters. did get a little glimpse of that. That was lovely, I thought. Mm. As well as Sauron too, seen in the distance, as, <laughs> as is his want. You know, and also the, some of the other elf players were important. The smith who will forge the rings of power. Ooh. As you were saying, there, there are some interesting relationships in there. We've got the, the halfwits who are going to no doubt work in with the Astari, which is like the very, very small with the very, very great. We yeah. have that star-crossed lover mm-hmm. romance between an elf and a human. So there's familiar themes here, which I think is intentional, yeah. Yeah, we saw something similar to that in The Hobbit with a, a hobbit and an elf. Mm-hmm. Uh, which mm-hmm. was even more doomed than this one is probably going to be. <laughs> yes. Because, <laughs> you know, you see doom coming up on this sort Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. And he'd be right in place in this. I actually wanted to see more of Sauron myself, but okay, you know. And Galadriel. Probably coming, probably coming. We have Galadriel, and, and Galadriel is actually not Elrond's wife. And Elrond no. is not Galadriel's husband later on or earlier on or anything at all like that. They are very, very friendly. Yeah, sorry, when I said relationship, they have history. From memory, the way it works in Lord of the Rings is that Galadriel is Arwen's grandmother. Oh, okay, cool, yeah. cool, uh, interesting. So, you know, because Elrond is Arwen's father um, and Elrond marries Galadriel's daughter. Interesting. Oh, because, yes, you do get a sense that they are different ages, even though elves, they all look (laughs) young and beautiful, so you can't tell, really. Forever, apparently. It's it's, it's like that movie In Time. Uh It gets confusing because some human characters have fairly long lives as well, like Aragorn actually lives for quite a long time, but he's not that long-lived that he's alive thousands of years before. Mm. And now here's Jimmy Bates with his version of Bear McCreary's Galadriel theme from Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. 
Jimmy Bates with Bear McCreary's Galadriel theme from Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Elvish has left the building. This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero G. Rob Jan and Megan McHugh back in the studio talking about the new Amazon Prime series, The Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. I was so happy to find out that Galadriel, her family, is the house of Elmo. (laughs) So I imagine a family dinner with Elmo. (laughs) And speaking of Muppets, you will also have noticed if you are a Dark Crystal fan, Mm. many elements of Dark Crystal are echoes of The Lord of the Rings because of the the time that it was made in. Gotcha. There's a fantasy template running there. And there's a thing in Dark Crystal called Trial by Stone. Mm. And there is actually a Trial by Stone in the second episode of Lord of the Rings. And another main relationship is a deep, and and when you're talking about dwarves, they delve very deep, friendship between Durin, who Mm -hmm. is one of the main powers in the underground under the – mountain kingdom of Khazad Doom, which we see in all of its operational glory. Amazing. Rings of Power. And the elves, he's got a big friendship with Elrond in this, but it's wobbly. (laughs) Very, very wobbly because elves and dwarves don't run in the same time scales and accidents happen and emissions and commissions. (laughs) We are, of course, talking about The Rings of Power, which is uh, on Amazon Prime, a couple of episodes already out now. Should we wrap up with a couple of our final thoughts? So I think for me, I'm definitely engaged. I like the look of it. I think it's very elven production design, golden, ethereal, but that I can tell the battle scenes and kind of the tension buildup is going to be fantastic. There'll be payoff, I'm hoping, if it continues to kind of build and build and build. I like that the tone is fantasy and it's engaging and there's going to be excitement. It's got maybe a scale of something like a Game of Thrones, but it's not upsetting. It's not violent. Game of Thrones gets very dark. I think Rings of Power is like, let's do a fantasy thing. It's a dark story, but we just really want people to be engaged. It's it's a bit more family friendly, although I wouldn't say it's necessarily for kids at all, but I think it's a bit more accessible maybe if you don't feel like turning something on and being thoroughly depressed like sometimes Game of Thrones tends to do or a House of the Dragon or what have you. You're not going to see a lot of nudity or sex. You are going to see violence. There are decapitations usually. Mm, um, True, true. Battles and things, yeah. Uh, And it is very scary when it has to be. Mm, mm, That's good. That's good. We want that. Yeah, because we all want a good scare in a fantasy series. I like the relationships between the characters. I'm actually there for them. Particularly my favourites at the moment are the the two curious hobbits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're great. And the casting is really good. The half-foots, let's be clear. The half-foots, yes, I Mm -hmm. should say that. The casting is really great. Yeah, Everybody appears to to fit well the roles they have chosen. There's some Mm. funny bits in it too with the elf smith wants to be known for more than just making jewellery. <laughs> and yet he is going to go off and forge the rings of power. <laughs> I know. I know. You're like, oh, mate. <laughs> you know, like, I think- bling me up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like, too, that I don't know a lot of these people. These are all new faces to me yes, for the most yes. part. And I think that's a fantastic choice. And they're all so magnetic. And I think that 
it's great to just put people in these kinds of roles that you can get to know and not come to with predefined notions. With the exception of the one person who I recognised, Sir Lenny Henry, ah. playing one of the half-foots. You see, other people are going to bring different luggage to this. They are going to recognise people because there are lots of Australian and New Zealand actors in this. I heard a few, yes. <laughs> yeah, because it's being done in uh, New Zealand initially. Yeah, yeah. And I believe the whole production has pulled up stumps and moved to the UK now. Yeah. So, okay. you know, for various reasons. I'm on board for this so far. I am finding the characters quite engaging for various reasons. I like that it's a prequel to The Lord of the Rings and they're operating well within what, what they've got to work with, which is a lot. Yes. Yep. Agree. And I'm going to stick with it. Yeah, same. That's Rings of Power. It's on Amazon Prime. You can start checking it out now. Still got episodes to drop in the weeks coming. Should we take a track to like lead us out of our little uh, time in Middle Earth and on to our next piece? Yeah, we've played this before and we'll play it again. It's Howard Shaw's Concerning Hobbits from Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings, and it's the London Symphony Orchestra here. In the marmalade forest, forest. between the make-believe trees. G'day, I'm Brent McKenzie. I played an in elf in Lord of the Rings. My dad played Elendil the King. You're listening to Zero G on 3RRR. And I have one thing to say. My name is Figwit the Elf. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Yeah, concerning hobbits. Very concerned little hobbits is there. <laughs> Howard Shaw and the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings. Just a nice little thing to go out of. Now, discussion of, uh, we'll have to come up with an acronym for this, uh, (laughs) L-O-T-R-T-R-O-P. Lodotrop. Lot of of trop. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that rolls off the tongue, but but we can can workshop it. (laughs) And it's not true either because it's actually a good series and I wish it well. All righty. Now, we're on to The Sandman, another television series. It's also major and epic at the moment. There's so much going on. And, yes, Sandman has dropped on Netflix and it's all available to watch as is kind of Netflix's vibe. So pretty amazing to catch up with that. Have you read the comics at all? Because I'm going to preface this with I have not. A little bit. A sin of omission on my part because The Sandman is one of the major graphic novel influences upon the entire field going forwards from back then. Now, just to run through a very quick riff on it, The Sandman is actually a DC comic character. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's been in all sorts of different DC comics as various types of hero over time. Uh, There's a pulp detective called Wesley Dodds, Garrett Sanford, superhero, and Hector Hall, and so on, because this is all tied into the DC universe. And Mm -hmm. they've actually had to pull out a lot of the DC references Mm -hmm. to make this series, but that also happened earlier on. It's it's quite complicated, all of that. But we're really concerned with the Neil Gaiman take on The Sandman, which was published by DC Comics. And it's had artists like Sam Keefe, Mark Dringenberg, Jill Thompson, Sean McManus, Mark Hempel, Brian Tabbitt, and Michael Zuli. So this came out in 1989. It went to 1996. It was a a large 75-issue run. Mm -hmm, And this actually came under the Vertigo DC imprint. There's been many additions to this. There have been spin-off novels, Uh, also additional sort of sagas. The Sandman is also known as Morpheus Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. also known as a dream. He is one of the seven endless Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. 
let you know that <laughs> fellow endless of people like destiny, death, despair, delirium, and destruction. You know, so you've mm. got this whole thing, and they are what it says on the tin. So <laughs> Morpheus or Dream is in charge of dreams. Yep. And he has his own little kingdom, and he's chuffing along in that little kingdom until he gets summoned and imprisoned Mm. by a human mage. And when I say imprisoned, he's not just stuck in a little salt circle for a couple of days. Mm. It's wrongful imprisonment because it's about World War I sort of time. The human mage is trying to capture death Mm -hmm. in order Mm -hmm. to bring his son, who's been killed in war, back to life. But he gets Dream instead, which instantly means that humanity is robbed of dreams for a period of time. Yes. Now, because of the vagaries of television production, as opposed to the comic book coming out in 1989, it's a longer period than it was in the original book, much longer. So we've got like 100 years. Yeah. And so Earth is all kind of stuffed up. There's this entire 20th century of horror. Mm, which is mm-hmm. pretty true, as we know. And part of it's down to the fact that dreams were mucked up yeah, for yep. that time. So this story opens with that and then goes on as Dream will obviously escape and try and get back his magic artifacts that he needs. Mm-hmm. He's got three items of power. This is more Lord of the Rings, isn't it? But he's trying to get them back, like yep. Sauron, actually. And he has a sandbag, and obviously yep. the, the Sandman is sandbag. It's literally bag of sand, yep. Not bag's end, but bag of sand. And a helm, not a yep. helm's deep, but still a helmet. And it's a very strange-looking helmet too, but it's spot on for the original artwork. Yeah, uh, it's a little plague doctory, but ooh, also a little with bird-like. A, with a spine hanging out the front. Uh, yeah, very, yeah. Yeah. Also a magic ruby, which is much more mm-hmm. conventional in its appearance than <laughs> Just a nice gemstone. Yeah. So that's what's happening in this story. Now, there are three tropes that are running throughout this. Number one, he's got to repair his kingdom and Mm -hmm. and restore Mm -hmm. dreams to humanity. And number two is that he's got to get his magic MacGuffins back. Yes, of course. To Mm -hmm. do that. Number three is that Morpheus will undergo a journey through this. And I can't quite fathom this. He's been in charge of humanity's dreams for a very long time, perhaps an endless amount of time. Mm. And yet he doesn't seem to be all that knowledgeable about humanity in lots of ways. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? (laughs) And in that, he reminds me of Terry Pratchett's character, Death. So maybe that's why he was mistaken for him. And you know what? Neil Gaiman's writing actually is very much like Terry Pratchett in many Mm -hmm. ways, except I think Gaiman is more dark. He goes more into the the gothic horror sort of elements of it. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. That is The Sandman, the series. It is dropped on Netflix. Yes. Now. It is important to note, too, that Gaiman has been involved in the series. So a lot of people, I think Sandman has often been talked about something people wanted adapted, a bit worried how would it be adapted and so on. And Gaiman has actually been involved in the development of this series along with David S. Goyer and Alan Heinberg. And so he's had a pretty firm hand in bringing this to screen. So I think that's quite interesting, too, in that he's got some creative input as well and managed to wave his wand over the the visual and and just kind of the concept of how it's going to go from page to screen. Mm. I said that they did cut out a lot of DC characters. That happened earlier on in the um, Sandman graphic novels and so on. But you won't see too many references to them in this, if any, that I've been able to spot so far. But you will 
know that there is a television series called Lucifer mm-hmm. uh, with Tom Ellis, I think, playing the eponymous hellish character. That is not the same actor playing Lucifer in this for really obvious reasons once you see who it is. So it's not the same character as such, although you will see Lucifer and their sidekick Mazikeen in this. Mazikeen doesn't seem a whole lot changed actually in in tone to the one in the, uh, the series, but they couldn't make that same sort of thing work in this one. It's a different kind of take mm-hmm. also john constantine the hellblazer the occult detective mm-hmm. gender swapped here as uh, joanna constantine that is the original alan moore created character who did appear in an early run of the sandman okay, so cool. you know there are some crossovers there let's talk about the characters because this is a very much character driven story yeah, should we take a little track first and then delve a bit further? Yeah, I think we will uh, dream a little dream. And <laughs> that actually should be the track that I'm going to play, but it's not. Going to go with The Kingdom of Dreams, the main title theme mm-hmm. from The Sandman Season 1, David Buckley here with what I feel is a, a pretty good uh, evocative track. Great. This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero G. Yeah, Kingdom of Dreams Mm -hmm. is the main title track from the Sandman series that's dropped on Netflix. Again, one of these big major fantasy series all hitting us at the moment. You've got Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, and the Sandman as well. What an age of wonders we live in. Even when we're not in the age of marvels. And that was a track by David Buckley. See, they're so quick with these soundtrack albums now. (sighs) All right, now we are talking about the Sandman here, and we've kind of given you an intro into what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Uh, As to the characters in here, there are many. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely many, all of them from Doctor Who, because it's filmed in the UK. (laughs) But, you know, just running through this, Tom Sturridge plays Dream Morpheus, and he is actually really good at it. He's built like a stick, and the costume that they put him into, Mm. this long coat, and, yes, this means that the Doctor Who actors who are in this show are once again acting with a mysterious fellow who's aloof and superior wearing a long coat. (laughs) So not the first time for them. I actually haven't seen Tom Sturridge before in anything. Have you encountered him? Only in a couple of not genre things like TV series and a movie, not very much at all, to be honest. And so I knew who he was. And when I saw that he was cast, I was like, oh, interesting. I wonder how that will go. Can he hold a series like this as the centre key character? And even in the first episode, there was quite a few powerful moments of him being silent and just using his facial expressions where I was like, oh, no, he's up to the challenge. He's definitely got this nailed and I really thought he was a great not just because he looks the part but also I thought that he was already carrying like that striking energy even in those early scenes where he's like stuck in that (laughs) globe he did play Lord Byron in the 2017 Mary Shelley and I can see that Mm, mm. And again, Henry VI in the Hollow Crown. Yeah, can see that too. (laughs) Here he's note perfect. He's very goth, Mm -hmm. extraordinarily goth. And his character arc in this, you'll note the more for subtle changes. 
I think that's the way to look at it in here. Very subtle changes as he goes along, and it's actually a joy to watch if you can apply joy to a a show that is very (laughs) dark in tone. You know, you've got Boyd Holbrook playing Caridfian, a nightmare who escaped from the dreaming when Morpheus was incarcerated. Patton Ostwaltz is the voice of Matthew the Raven, exactly as you would expect him to be. What a great role. <laughs> John D is played by David Thewlis, who's always great and very, mm-hmm. very sophisticated in this one as a, a strange sort of villain. Jenna Coleman from Doctor Who plays Joanna Constantine. This has got a cast on it, right? Like I think it's pretty, I'll admit I've only sort of started this, but it, they do have a little sneak peek of like, coming up this season and that actually I was like wow look at all these people I can see now where this is going to go because the first episode is all set up it's setting up the law the context world building characters there's like quite a bit and and then I realized oh nothing's this hasn't even started yet and so that sneak peek was great to get a sense of what was coming and I really loved the vibe like in general dark and moody and very atmospheric. I was like, oh, there's some kind of zippy, interesting stuff to come. Like, oh, it's, yeah. there's gonna, we're going to have some weird action and some crazy, like, activities going on. And I was like, okay, great. We're about to set off on a big adventure. Gwen Christie appears, uh, Arthur Davil from Doctor Who again. You know, people in this, like Stephen Fry, Mark Hamill plays the voice of a character. <laughs> and Lenny Henry, once a more, uh, pops up here as a voice character. Charles Dance is Sir Roderick Burgess, the mage that I was talking about Mm. earlier on at the start. (laughs) I'm just looking at David Tennant, Ian McNeese, Derek Jacobi. Oh, my God. James McAvoy. Georgia Tennant. (laughs) Michael Sheen. So we've got good omens about this show coming up again. Wow, so much in this. And the Writing, I feel, the adaptation of Neil's stories is pretty damn good. Mm. They've gotten people who know what they're about and know what the stories are about, including, mm. I note, Melbourne-based writer uh, Catherine Smythe-McMullen, <laughs> Emmy Award winner and also had her first feature recently produced and distributed and, you know, obviously going places quite fast although as any creative knows it's never fast enough (laughs) (laughs) so yeah this is a a handsome production it is a bit too gothic-y for me but you know that's that's what it is um you know but at the same time you've also got neil gaiman's quirkiness that shows through you know like uh, at one stage morpheus suffers the fates yes Mm. those free fates and you know the first thing they say after they've appeared out of the magic and the the special effects and so on the first thing they say well you're looking a bit thin (laughs) are you eating well (laughs) so you got that this is where gaiman reminds me of pratchett a little bit here Mm, it will mm. take you out of the uh, the moment to give you a bit of relief Mm. yeah it's terribly well done i'm not as steeped in this as most other fans from that particular era i don't see that it's going to cause people too much stress in terms of how it's done and i just like it Uh, it, it's growing on me I, I was watching a couple of episodes to start with i think i'm about four or five in now mm. and I thought, oh is this just going to be this big goth sort of thing and and not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that but it's not always my cup of tears sure <laughs> <laughs> i don't think you're alone there because i know a lot of people 
I've spoken to were kind of like, oh, the first, like, what, what is this? Like, it's what's happening with it? Like, I'm not sure where it's going. I, there's a lot that's being introduced to me and I'm not really sure. And I think you're probably at the point now where it's about to really pick up and, and get moving. But I think from my perspective, as someone who's pretty unfamiliar with the whole, like the property itself, coming in, I, the end of the first episode, like I said, ended up somewhere totally different. I thought I was watching a different story. And then all of a sudden I realized quite a lot had happened in the first episode and I'm like, oh no, this is the story. And so I, I did enjoy the first episode a lot, but I love a gothicy dark mood. So I'm probably going to enjoy that element of like the, the whole um, vibe. And, and kind of that's going to grab me a bit more straight away. I will give you a strong language and icky gore warning okay. up front. Mm, so, yeah, yeah you yeah, know, lots yeah. of splat in this one. And that's what it is. Yeah, I think it's not going to shy away from some of that, but I wouldn't say it's the centerpiece of it. So I don't think you should go in thinking it's a particularly gory, violent show just because it can. It's much more about story and things from what I gather. The tone of this, as we were saying, is quite dark. And there's another tone that I wanted to evoke in this. This has got a very much pulp feeling like Tales from the Crypt, those Mm. sorts of uh, yes. pulp magazines yep. deliberately yep. so but it's mm. also crossed with the same kind of english comic book sensibilities that produced and part of that's an artwork thing that produced things like uh, 2000 ad yeah you know yep. so if you're an alan moore fan some of this is going to feel familiar as well mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Know, so that's the kind of thing you're going to get out of this you know i can see people literally falling in love with the Morpheus character in this. I can spot one when I know one, you know, this is like the, the outsider character, like Mr. Spock or. Yeah. It's got the makings of being iconic. And I think I'm so pleased that it's, uh, you know, the character I can tell right away is worked on screen, like mm. the, the actor and everything, like the whole ethos around it. They've done a great job capturing that. And I think if you if that had been missed or a, the no, a note was slightly off, the whole show would be thrown off. And so it's pretty great to see. I mean, and also, yeah, it's got that stacked cast and Gaiman's involved, so it's not going to go too off the rails in terms of whatever his vision is. And you're right, like I think everybody gets it, like the people working on this get what they're doing. Mm, mm. And so do the actors too. You know, and a lot of the, the writers on this, they all have grown up with the Sandman. Yeah. I mean, I am actually surprised that I missed out on it. I was going to say, I do think it's <laughs> one of the ones that comes up a lot. Like people are like, oh, have you read this? You know, like it's, it's often name dropped as a pretty important key part of culture the last few decades. But I mean, this is great. This show is hopefully going to, you know, might encourage people to go read it or just bring attention to it again, bring it to the forefront, that kind of thing. So it's pretty good. Yeah. Highlights for me so far have been Cain and Abel. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And their pet gargoyle. (laughs) That was was hilarious. Uh, I also thought the relationship between John Dee and his mum was terribly well played. Mm -hmm. And also when – John D has escaped from his incarceration. There's a, a chillingly tense episode where a bystander who's literally just driving by gets kind of taken hostage by him, mm, and yeah. but also not, and it's a complicated little interplay, and it's mm-hmm. full attention because you know that this guy mm. is an absolute psychopath, you know, so mm. anything could happen. And, and the way that plays out, the, the, just the tension drips out of the episode. This is really good. Nice, mm, nice mm. stuff. 
So, yeah, it is The Sandman. It has dropped on Netflix and, look, they could go on forever with this. Yeah, well, they've got the content there. They can tell. That's kind of what I was worried about. I was like, ooh, what are they going to focus on? I didn't realise there was so much content, but, yeah, as long as they do it in a focused way, they could just keep keep the wheel turning. Mm, mm. The hourglass of, yeah. of time dripping exactly. away there. Well, I think that's about it for Zero G for today. And yep. there's a lot of music connected with it apart from uh, David Buckley's sound track or sand track, as the case may be. But the sands of time are running out for us today on the show. And we will have Joe Brunetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. Radiothon is still going. Our on-air kind of Radiothon has wound up, but the Radiothon period is still open. So please, if you haven't subscribed or donated and would like to, you still can. And also if you have and haven't settled up yet, now's your chance to still get into that prize draw. You have to do that by the 5th of October. So thank you so much to everyone who has already done so. Mm. Now I was going to finish up today's show with a track called The Sandman featuring Gillian Anderson. And PJ Harvey is behind this one, and it's from the All About Eve original music soundtrack album. I thought that was pretty cool in Gillian Anderson being in this, the right tone for the Sandman, really, when you think about it. This is one of the series we're going to keep on top of as we go along the Sandman, Lord of the Rings. And yep, yep. We'll probably get sucked into House of the Dragon as well at some stage. You, you've got a bit of catching up to do, though, before we do that, Rob. No, it's a prequel. True. True. Just, Maybe I shouldn't be so quick to, yeah, yes, good yeah. point, good point. I don't need to know nothing about the rest of that. <laughs> I've seen one season of it. All right, thank you to Alice Savage, our podcaster, too. Sand Man. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.